If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the book of Psalms and chapter 2. This is uh, the fifth year we've done uh, Summer in Psalms here in July. This is where we take uh, four or five weeks this year before uh, to look at um, selected psalms. So uh, we try to look at psalms from different genres every week. And so uh, last week, Jack served us well from Psalm 1, which is what's called a wisdom psalm. Um, psalm 2 that we'll look at today is what's called a royal psalm. And then next week, we'll look at a lament, okay? And what we try to do is we read it. I'm about to read it in a second. Preach about it, which I'll be doing for the next two or three hours. And then uh, guests are like, he's not serious, right? Um, and then we'll sing it, okay? The songs were meant to be sung, and so you'll hear it read, you'll hear it preached, exegeted, and then we'll sing it together, okay? So Psalm 2, it'll be behind me on the screen. I'm coming out of the Christian Standard Bible this morning, CSB, a little different translation. If you wanted to follow along with that, there's a free app in the App Store, CSB Bible. Or if you just have that Bible app, you can download the CSB for free. Um, let's go ahead and read this together. Psalm 2. The Holy Spirit says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them, in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths in all of our hearts. As of course you know, this past Tuesday was the American holiday known as Independence Day, celebrated on July the 4th. Wasn't it weird that it was in the middle of the week I celebrated uh, the way any red-blooded American patriot would, okay, by doing virtually nothing, uh, followed by some grilling, over eight, of course, capped it all off by watching fireworks. But I didn't, want, I didn't watch fireworks in the traditional sense. Uh, for me, the fireworks came in the form of watching a movie starring the greatest actor of this or any generation, Nicolas Cage in perhaps the best July 4th movie of all time, National Treasure. This movie, if you're not familiar, uh, in which it is said that there's a key on the Declaration of Independence, which was placed there because the Founding Fathers hid like centuries of treasure from the British in a secret location, and this leads to one clue after another that are hidden in various significant uh, American documents or monuments and things like this. Well, this got me going onto like a rabbit trail, uh, trying to learn a bit about more about the Declaration of Independence, where the original is, and, you know, things like this. 
where I ended up was reading about the initial reactions uh, to the Declaration and its publishing. Um, we all know the basis of the story, right? But do we know kind of what people thought at the time? One author describes this way, talking about the way Great Britain reacted. He said, news of the Declaration of Independence reached Great Britain in August 1776 and ignited a media frenzy. Many newspapers published the full text of the document, albeit without comment. Others, like the Scots Magazine, printed the Declaration with accompanying, often sarcastic, editorial asides. One commentator attacked unalienable rights as the unalienable rights of talking nonsense. Another author viewed any pretense to equality as illusory, challenging any American rebel to find two men created equal. The Kentish Gazette claimed that behind the curtain of economic grievances of independence lay the lust for power of priests and demagogues, desirous to lure the common people of America into believing that they, not Great Britain, should rule. So those in Great Britain couldn't understand, right, the colonists, why would they want to throw off the monarchy? Right? Why would they want, what would they do without a king? What kind of people rule themselves? Well, around the world, where the majority of people were ruled by absolute monarchs, people were amazed that something like this could happen once news reached them. That is, when they were allowed to see the news of American rebellion because some monarchs censored or heavily edited the news because they didn't want the people to get any wild ideas. The Declaration of Independence cast off all claims of the British crown by referring to him not as his majesty, but as a tyrant, and stating that he has contributed to the long train of abuses. They mention that no less than 17 times. They say, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. In America, the response was mixed. But the majority of people were ready to cast off the British crown and become free from the monarchy. Some went so far, there was a statue of King George III at Bowling Green that they tore down, and then they melted it down and repurposed it for musket ammunition. That's ironic, isn't it? So in the conflict that brought about this country that we celebrated this last week, you had this interplay between a ruler, right, people who rejected his authority, people who couldn't conceive of a, like a monarch-less country, a tyrannical ruler. You had nations raging against one another, which brought about a war and everything that comes with that. Many, if not all, of those things you can see today by simply checking the news at home and abroad. Nations rage today as they did 250 years ago. Kings rule, peoples are subjugated, people want to rule themselves, and countries conspire and wage war. Why do the nations rage? We ask that, I think, today, just as they asked it then. Just as they asked it yesterday, and we asked it the day before, and the century before, and the millennium before that, and on and on you can go. Go back in time and look down at the corridors of history, and what will you see? Nations raging and plotting and rulers coming and going and people rebelling and wars and rumors of wars, and it's nonstop. Never a time when there is total peace. Why do the nations rage? Well, this is a question that our psalmist asks and then answers in the text that we're considering this morning. Well, there's no author given. Peter ascribes this psalm to David in Acts 4 when he and John were before the religious leaders. So you can imagine that David 
as king of Israel, surrounded by nations who worship idols and wage constant war and hated the people of God, wanted to know the answer to this opening question. And he wanted to give words to his people regarding the nations and their unstable ways. And we want to know this also, don't we? Why do the nations rage? So let's explore this psalm, and we're going to consider three points. I'll just give them to you, right? Point one, there is a king. There is a king. Point two, we reject the king. Point three, we need the king. So point one, there is a king. Point two, we reject the king. Point three, we need the king. So first, there is a king. As mentioned earlier, psalm is a royal psalm because it is a coronation psalm. Okay, that's another way we could say it. So in the immediate context, this would be a psalm that would be sung by the people when a new king would be coronated to take his seat on the throne in Israel. If David is the author, then he's writing this for those who would come after him, right? And especially one king in particular who would sit on the throne forever and ever. You may recall, if you know your Bibles, you've been to Sunday school before, that God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where he says, this is what the Lord tells David, I will rise a descendant after you, will come forth and establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. But even before that final king would come, David is establishing that the Lord is, verse 4, enthroned in heaven. The ultimate king above other, every other king is the Lord who sits enthroned on high. So before there was a monarch in Israel, the Lord was king. Even while there's a monarch in Israel, the Lord is king. Above every king on earth, there is a king in heaven who is the Lord and his rule extends throughout the universe and throughout the ages. He sovereignly reigns over everything, even time itself. Every planet, every star, every leaf, every grain of sand, every molecule is under the authority of this sovereign ruler. Verse 8 shows us that he is the possessor of all things because when his anointed simply asks for his inheritance, the Lord says he'll grant it. And what is the inheritance? It's the ends of the earth. This means that no king serves autonomously. No ruler serves by their own good pleasure. No one in power in any nation has ultimate power or authority. There is a king above and beyond every king and every ruler, and he rules over them all. And this truth that there is a king who is enthroned in heaven and that we are all his subjects is something written on all of our hearts. We know inherently that there is a king who rules us, and he does what Psalm 1 says, which is give decrees and instructions on how to live as his subjects. All humans know this. All humans know intrinsically that there is a king who rules over all things. Even if we want to fancy ourselves, as we often do, as self-contained, autonomous beings, we know deep, deep down inside that there is a ruler over and beyond us and behind and above those earthly rulers among us and that he has given us an ethic on which to live by. This is stamped 
on every image bearer of God, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. I mean, why is it, have you noticed that many of our fiction stories take place in a kingdom with a king? Have you ever noticed that? Not only that, but many of those same stories have to do with like a rightful king who either has been lost or there's hopeful expectation that he will return or that the king would come who would rule over a prosperous age. We have endless tales of wicked rulers over people who are longing for a better one to set things right. In one of the oldest of these stories, you had King Arthur. You guys read King Arthur, right? You know the story. Everyone was waiting for him, and he served with dignity and honor, and the land prospered. And then when he was gone, the people yearned for his return so that he could come back and they could go back to a time that they enjoyed when he was ruling. Arthur's grave even had inscribed on it the once and future king because there was hopeful expectation that he would somehow come back. All of our stories are like this. Shakespeare, his story centered almost always around the intrigue of courts and monarchs. Why? Many of our modern stories center on kings and queens and princes and princesses, and we're far removed from such things. Kids' movies, have you noticed? Like The Lion King and Shrek or the endless stream of Disney princesses, right? I've seen them all. Tell of rightful rulers opposed to wicked ones. Even comic book movies have stories of kings like Black Panther and Thor. Some of the most popular stories that endure time like Narnia and the Lord of the Rings all tell of a future king who will come and set to right and vanquish all evil so that the land may prosper. Why are we drawn to stories like these? Why do humans keep writing them? Because there's something in all of our hearts that one, knows there's a king above and beyond, and two, because we look at the state of the world. We know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And therefore, we long for a king who will make everything new. Isn't that true? What the psalm is doing is looking past all the kings of Israel. It's looking past David himself. It's looking past every king or president or prime minister who would ever rule over any earthly kingdom to the true king that God has set above all. Only one king can make the sorts of claims that are present in this psalm. A king of Israel might can claim, right, adopted son status of God when they were coronated, but only one king can truly be called the son of God. Only one person has been told, you are my son, I have begotten you. Only one person can ask of God for an inheritance and be given literally everything. The author of Hebrews begins their exposition by saying that after Jesus made purification for sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, that Jesus is essentially coronated as king of the universe. And then he quotes Psalm 2 asking, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? You know, some may ask, why Jesus' bodily resurrection and ascension are indispensable to the message of the gospel. And here is, in part, why. Because Jesus' resurrection showed that God had accepted Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and his ascension enthroned him as king of the universe, thus fulfilling Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is saying, you know how you long for a better king who is greater than all other kings? 
You know how you feel in your heart that there is a king above and beyond all rulers of any kind. God has an anointed one who is that king, and he will make everything right. This means that Psalm 2 is reminding us that God sovereignly rules over history, and that he has a plan to make all things new through his anointed king. This means that even the bad things that happen in our lives and world are under the sovereign hand of a good and wise God, which means nothing, nothing, not even our pains and hardships will be wasted. Do you see? Is there better news than that? So, so the king that David was looking forward to is the one we worship as present and future king and throne in heaven as we speak. The king our hearts long for in all of our stories and imaginations has been, verse 6, installed on Zion, God's holy mountain. So why do the nations rage? And not just whole nations, right? Why do individuals rage? If there's a king and he is installed by God, why do we rage? Well, because point number two, we reject the king. We reject the king. There's a king but we reject him. David asks in verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It comes down to this. They hate and reject God as king and they reject God's anointed one who is installed on the throne of the universe. That's why the nations rage. That's why there is sin and misery. That's why there is pain and suffering. C.S. Lewis put it succinctly, didn't he, when he said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. See? Something other than God to make him happy. That's why the nations rage. That's why people plot in vain. Now look again at your text. You see this word plot. Your translation might say devise, but it probably says plot here. This is the same exact word that is used in Psalm 1 for meditate. So here's what we're being told, okay? There's a king. He has given decrees or instructions, and the wise person, according to Psalm 1, is the person who delights and meditates on his decrees and does them. Yes? You with me so far? So conversely, the fool rejects the king's decrees and even the king himself. Instead of meditating on the word of the Lord, they plot and they do so in vain. In other words, they meditate on vanity. They meditate on things that amount to nothing rather than the things of the Lord and his king. Do you see? So the wise one sees the word of the king as a delight and is thus blessed. What do the fools do? Verse 3, they say, let's tear off the chains and throw their ropes off of us. What's this saying? So the idea here is not of someone who is like in prison, but someone like a yoke, has a yoke on them, which like with which an animal would be led. That, that's the picture here. Those rebelling against God see his leading as a burden. And they say, let's cast off his fetters. Let's fling off those bonds, these chains, because they want to lead themselves. You understand? The law of the Lord isn't the light. It's bondage to them. So what do they do? They conspire. They rage. They devise plans that amount to nothing but vanity. 
Is this not, this is what sin is, yes? All sin is casting off the king and his decrees and saying, I want to do it my way. That's what your sin is. That's what my sin is. That's what your neighbor's sin is. That's what your friends and family and countrymen's sin is. All sin is rebellion. And all rebellion is saying, I know inherently that there is a king, but I think I would make a better one. Jim Hamilton says, those who would reject Yahweh and his anointed want to reign for themselves in the way that seems right in their own eyes without reference to morality as Yahweh has defined it. Why do the nations rage? Why is there sin and pain and hardship and suffering? Because the fundamental problem of all people is that they want to throw off the bonds and tear off the ropes and break the yoke of God. That's what it comes down to. For for all of our softening of sin that we do, you do this, by labeling it merely mistakes or whoopsie-daisies or not so bad or whatever excuse you have to understand, see, we want to do to justify our sins, they all come down to rebellion against the throne. Cosmic treason is what sin is. This is why C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. I don't know if George MacDonald is a name that you're familiar with, but he was uh, an author who was Lewis's primary influence to the point that Lewis actually named the narrator in The Great Divorce after him. Well, MacDonald said that the one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own. He said, my own king, my own subject. My own glory is my chief care. My ambition to gather the regards of men is the one center myself. The more self-sufficing I feel or imagine myself, the greater I am. I will be free with freedom that consists in doing whatever I am inclined to do. From whatever quarter may come the inclination. See, the nations rage, the people's plot in vain because they cast off the yoke of God. Which is meant to keep them safe and help them live as they were meant. And why? Why do they, why do we cast off the yoke of God? Why do we meditate on vanity rather than the word of the Lord, which are the decrees of the king? Why do we want to be our own rulers? Well, it's, it's what we've said before, isn't it? Because we live, listen, we live under the delusion that freedom is found in the lack of constraints rather than in the right ones. You see, freedom is me being the master of my fate and the captain of my soul and don't tread on me and don't restrict me in any way lest I not truly be free. Is that freedom? That's what people in verse 2 think. Throw off these burdensome bonds and now I'm free. No restrictions, now I'm free. No king, no ruler, no one in charge of me, now I have true freedom. That's not true freedom. Because life cannot be lived with no restrictions at all. Every teenager, yes, learns this. (laughs) When they think if they get out of their parents' house and on their own, they can do whatever they want, they'll be free. But you know what? As somebody who thought that, it doesn't take much of adulthood to realize it's a pretty big bummer. And that maybe those restrictions weren't for no purpose. 
right? Sin says, I am my own, and this rejection of the king leads to more bondage, not freedom. Tim Keller said this, modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of our aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. What is our freedom but a path to our own demise? What am I, asked Augustine, but a guide to my own destruction? Have you guys uh, seen the trailer for the new movie Dune Part 2 at all? Uh, It's supposed to come out in November. I noticed when I was watching the trailer, there's this brief exchange that's shown where the main character, his name is Paul, he says, all my visions lead to horror. And the person he's talking to says, because you lose control? And Paul responds, because I gain it. See, the assumption was that the horror he saw in his visions would be from the lack of control when really it was because he had gained control. That is the inevitable end for those who want freedom abstracted from the Lord. Never true freedom, only a different sort of bondage that leads to pain and destruction. Even so, humans live under the delusion that they could cast off the Lord's chains and throw off his ropes and be free in their rebellion. Do you see? Okay, we have, to, we have to move on. What does the Lord think of all of this? We don't have to guess. But what does he think of the nations conspiring? The psalmist is like a director who dramatically takes us with the camera to like an earthly palace filled with earthly kings and they're conspiring together and they have those like that big table that's covered in maps and little figurines that they move about and devise how they can rebel against the Lord and his anointed one. And then like the camera, it pans up and 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 up into the heavenly throne room where the Lord is. And this is meant to show us not so much God's distance and removal from the fray, but his exaltation and his power. It's supposed to show us a silly picture of people conspiring to come against the Lord. How can puny kings resist the one who rules over all things? What could they do really? Like imagine if all the nations of earth could somehow get along for 20 minutes and they got together in that fancy United Nations building and they agreed to go to war against heaven. How would that war go? They'd like fire rockets and bombs in the sky and would fall lazily to the ground and heaven would yawn. That's a silly picture because it's meant to be. The psalmist says that God laughs. He ridicules them. He, he, he holds them in derision as they rage against him as in his anointed one. If you and I were told that even 10 people were going to come against us, we would be intimidated. Yes? If a whole nation said it's going to war against us, we'd be terrified. Even as mighty as America is, if the whole world banded together and declared war, that would be a terrifying sight. 
but the nation's raging and trying to throw off the Lord's bonds and plotting against him, what does he think of that? Makes him laugh. I like to imagine, uh, you guys remember Andre the Giants? Am I dating myself a little bit? People under 30 are Andre the what? Just watch The Princess Bride, okay, and you'll see. Well, he was a wrestler, and he was massive. And he was, imagine if he was at the peak of his popularity, a toddler came up to him and challenged him to a match. I said, talk trash. You're going down. I'm going to beat you down and pin you. What would he do? He'd laugh. Imagine if the undisputed greatest basketball player of all time, Jeff, Michael Jordan, was challenged in his prime to a pickup game against a fifth grader. It'd be ridiculous. He'd laugh in his face because there would be no contest. To an infinitely greater degree, God looks at the nations raging against him, and he laughs. They stand no chance. And my friend, that should be a comfort to you. Are you comforted by the fact that the king sovereignly sits on throne in heaven and will crush all rebellion, or are you anxious at the nations raging and the darkness of the world? That needs you to lock into me. The primary reason we would be anxious and afraid at the state of the world is simply this. We see verse 1, we internalize it, and then we forget verses 4 through 12. We are barraged with darkness and brokenness and raging of peoples and nations, and we take that in more than we take in that the Lord sits on the throne of the universe, sovereignly reigning with meticulous providence. At no time in human history has it been as obvious as right now that the nations rage and the world is broken. Not that it is more broken than ever, but we are constantly presented with images and information that prove Psalm 2-1 is true. And we watch and we read more of that than we do the word of God or meditate on the things of Christ. That's why we're anxious and afraid. Do you see? Jonathan Lehman said, the division and contention of our present cultural moment is just one more illustration of the nation's rage against the Lord. Division inside the church roots in such rage. The disdain you feel in the media, academy, or courtrooms roots in such rage. The arguments on social media depict this rage. Ironically, news sites even know that rage leads to more clicks. Rage means advertising dollars. You know, when I was a kid, do you know how much of the day's TV schedule was taken up by news and world events? You'd have to tune in at either 6 a.m. or 10 p.m. in Denver and turn on ABC, CBS, NBC, or Fox, and they would talk about the news for like 20 minutes. And it would just be straight information, not, not play for entertainment or to be controversial. Then there'd be sports and weather, and then Leno or Letterman. Right? And that was it in the morning, in the evening. You want to know more? Grab you a newspaper. But now, there are multiple channels playing 24 7 pumping out content of just the nation's raging. 
They don't know that this is what they're doing, but that's what it amounts to. No repeats or reruns. News 24-7 from talking heads that get more ratings the more divisive and hot-takey they could be. History is irrelevant because right now is what matters. And in 24 hours, the cycle will reset with some other latest thing. Am I lying? Add to this, these incessant rectangles in our pockets that give us news and social media instantaneously, and you have an anxious society because we see the nations raging, but we forget that God is in heaven and his anointed one is on the throne. Because we meditate on more news and social media than we do the word of God in which the wise delights. In his prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman cites Bill Moyer, who was a television host. He said this, Bill Moyer said this in 1984, I worry that my own business helps to make this an anxious age of agitated amnesiacs. We Americans seem to know everything about the last 24 hours, but very little of the last 60 centuries or the last 60 years. He said that in 1984. Postman adds to this that we're being rendered unfit to remember, for if remembering is to be something more than nostalgia, it requires a contextual basis, and the politics of images and instantaneous news provide no such context. A mirror records only what you are wearing today that is silent about yesterday. With television, we vault ourselves into a continuous, incoherent present. He said that in 1985. Imagine if he could see the technology we have now. This is why we're anxious, because we're inundated with the nations raging, including our own. But beloved of God, if you know that the Lord is enthroned in heaven and laughs, that he has a plan to bring about the end of those who rage against him and his people, and that all of history is literally progressing towards the full possession of all things by his Christ, and you will rule with him if you are in him, then what is there to be anxious about? What use has a Christian for anxiety about the nation's rage if they know for whom the world bends? What is there to be anxious about in the affairs of the world if at all, all of time leads directly to a conquering Christ who vindicates the righteous and crushes the rebel? If you're perplexed at the state of the world and you want to know why people's rage and nations rage and plot in vain? Well, the psalmist provides us an answer. It's because there is a king and people hate him and reject him because they want to be their own rulers. But if we're going to be free from the raging that consumes the nations, including our own, and consumes people all around us, we have to realize that we need the king because he's the only one that can save us. And this brings us to our third and final point. Point number three, we need the king. This, this psalm does what Psalm 1 did and what the texts we've looked at recently in Luke have done, which is this. Provide the reader with a choice. You have a choice today. Either we could be among those who are raging and plotting, trying to cast off the Lord's anointed and his fetters, or we can, verse 10, be wise Verse 12, kiss the son. In other words, we could continue our rebellion or we could submit to God's Christ. That's it. Those are the choices. 
And even in this psalm, where the psalmist is clearly telling us that God's Christ will put down the rebellion and crush his enemies, there is grace, isn't there? Because the psalm itself is a call and a warning to be wise and pay homage to the Son. There's still a chance to submit. This is a warning of what will happen if you don't. The choice is still up to the individual and to the nations, but the choice of rebellion will lead to God's wrath and the Son putting down the rebellion underfoot. The certainty of the psalm is that history is the story of peoples and nations raging, but God's anointed one has been coronated and he will rule now and fully in the end. The choice between the times that we live in is give him your allegiance or perish in your rebellion. The king has a scepter. Isn't that what we're told? And with it, he will crush the rebellious like pottery. But that will have been their choice. And your choice is the same. As it was for the kings and nations being addressed in Psalm 2. And every person today, be your own king and rage against God and his Christ or kiss the son, which would have been a symbolic act of one who has been conquered and submits to the victor. Well, we need to realize you realize we need a king. You need a king. We need a ruler. And you will have one. But who or what will it be? Do you see? You have a ruler. Every person has something or someone that they adore that is ruling them, that they have their supreme affection and allegiance. Even those who reject or disbelieve God are ruled by something or someone. It could be a person, like a spouse or a child. It could be a parent. It could be someone you simply admire or look up to. Uh, another person can be the controlling center of your life, even if they don't instruct what you do. Your life could be ruled by another person, or you could be your king could be a thing. It could be all the things we talk about all the time that drive our existence, job, money, American dream, or possessions, or any other thing that we center our lives on as the object that we draw our identity from. Or it could be that your king is just the person who stares back in the mirror every morning. Point is, you will have a ruler. You will have a king, but only one will do. This is our problem, yes? We know inherently that there's a king. We've established that. We know we need a king, but then we look to other lower things to rule us, and we're left empty, raging, plotting in vain. Earlier we talked about how many of our stories are centered on royalty, right? In a similar vein, you ever wonder why people are obsessed with the royal family of Britain? And the ins and outs of their goofy drama? Like royal weddings and coronations, autobiographies do big, huge, like bigger than the Super Bowl. TV ratings. And sales. Why? And if, if we aren't obsessed with the royal family across the pond, Americans just create their own royalty to be captivated by. We just call them celebrities. We follow their lives and their weird relationships. We hear their commentary and their opinions on things like politics and world affairs. Why? On the topic of politics, why are people so enthralled with them? And give their loyalty and undying fealty to these politicians they don't know. Why is all of our political language spoken in a way that makes it clear that we're resting our hopes and dreams on these people? They will cure what ails our nation, yes? They will make my life better, won't they? 
They will finally save us, won't they? I mean, really, let's be honest. The level of political discourse in our country, no matter your party affiliation, is idolatrous. We speak of these people like they could save us and cure all of our problems, and if they don't win, that's a wrap on civilization, right? Why do we do that? I was listening to Tim Keller's sermon from like the 90s, and he mentioned a New York Times columnist named Jeffrey Smaltz who died of AIDS, and in his last column, before he died, that they published, he talked about how he thought if only the Democratic presidential candidate was elected, he would make everything right. He said, I quote, I really did see him as a white knight who might save me. How naive I was to think that one man can make that big a difference. Why do we, why did he see a ruler being able to save him? And why do we look to politics or people or things to save us? It's because we know we need a king, but we're looking in the wrong places. Why does people, why does people's disappointment Disappointment hurt so much for you because they were supposed to save you, but they didn't live up to their end of the deal. The Bible says there is only one king who could bear the weight of ruler that we all need. We need a king, and God has provided us one in his Christ, his king, Jesus. Do you guys see his beauty? Look at him. He is One who has nations as his inheritance. He is one who should be served with reverential awe. One who we rejoice over with trembling, remembering whose presence we're in, becoming wise, becoming true worshipers, and serving, obeying, relying on him, expecting him to make everything right. But you know, as glorious as he is as king enthroned in heaven, he is more beautiful to us as one who is broken in order for his people to be. As Puritan Richard Sibbs says, Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed for his church. For in his willingness to die our death and take our suffering upon himself, he reveals the utter vigor and adore of his love. Which politician or president or king or queen or prime minister ever died in the place of their people? Only this king. Only Jesus. And if that's the case... We see that he has a yoke. Unlike the nations who rage and the people who plot in vain, we see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We see freedom and joy and life in his instructions like the wise man. We we show that we have kissed the sun by our receiving his instructions and obeying him with gladness. We see that we need to be led by a wise, everlasting king, and we actually want his yoke. We want a king because we need a king, and only he will do. So many people want to treat Jesus like he's a consultant or an add-on to accomplish their own personal dreams, so they claim attachment to him, yet they throw off his yoke like the nations do. Don't you see this will not do? Jesus is king, and the way in which we express our fidelity to him is by serving him and being led by him. He must be a king to us. He will not be a mere consultant or additive to our busy lives. He's owed nothing less, is he? Do you see how the last line of Psalm 2 bookends with the first line of Psalm 1? 
Look at it. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. All who take refuge in God's king are happy. You see? Obedience to Christ is a burdensome yoke to be cast off according to the wicked. But it is a yoke that is easy to those who submit to him because they love him and they know the emptiness of every other king and they see his beauty in his suffering as well as in his enthronement. See, now when we kiss the sun, we can see his instructions for what they really are, bringing life and wholeness to those who obey with gladness and delight in them. The way to life and fullness, the way to be wise and happy man or woman planted by the flowing streams that bears fruit is to kiss the Son, to submit to God's anointed one, Jesus Christ, who grabs his scepter via a cross and a shameful death on behalf of the very people who rebel against him and his statutes. And here's the thing. In the end, all will bow their knee to God's Christ. Every single knee will bow, and every tongue that has ever been created will utter these words, Jesus is Lord. Every earthly king, queen, president, prime minister, CEO, celebrity, ruler, everyone else who thought they had power independent of the true king will bend the knee just the same. The choice we get is, will we do that in this life by our own volition or only in the end when it's too late? There are only two options. Worship the Lord and do homage to his son, Jesus, or perish in his wrath. That's what it says. As Derek Kidner said, there is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. So can I ask, where do you take refuge? What or who rules you? There's only one true king. And there's only one place where real refuge can be found. There's only one place of refuge that will make us happy. There's only one place of refuge in which one can be blessed, and it's in the arms of this enthroned, exalted, glorious, suffering, bleeding, anointed King of glory. No other refuge will be a true refuge. Nowhere else can you find the wholeness and relief you need. Only this beautiful Christ. See your King? See your refuge. For all of those who trust in Christ, this psalm offers a word of comfort and consolation to you. No matter what you are facing, you are being shown here that God is sovereign over all things and that all things will be made new and right by Jesus in the end. No matter what is happening in your life, your God is in charge. And his king is on the throne. And he has made a promise that Jesus has fulfilled and that you can rely on. Jesus has defeated sin and death. He has borne your sin in his body. God has accepted his sacrifice. The Holy Spirit has resurrected him. God has declared him king over the universe. Nothing can thwart his rule, nor his purposes, nor his promises. And you can count on that. You could count on him. Our Jesus reigns and shall reign. Take refuge in him now and forever.